I'm Matt Peterson, and this is The Present Past from The Atlantic. The Soviet Union withdrew its military from Afghanistan 30 years ago in February, and now it seems to be back, at least diplomatically. The United States is talking to the Taliban, and Russia is too. They're hosting a parallel set of peace talks. I don't think you can understand either set of talks without looking back at the history of the series of wars that have afflicted the Afghans for decades. Today I want to go back to the moment of the Soviet withdrawal in 1989. My guest today is Amy Ferris Rotman. She's a reporter for the Washington Post based in Moscow, and she's reported from Afghanistan too. She's covered this resurgence of Russian interest in the Afghanistan conflict, and she Skyped me from Moscow. As we always do, I asked Amy to read an old story from the Atlantic. It was called Afghanistan Postmortem by Robert Kaplan from 1989. The title gives you a sense of how bleak his assessment was. Here's what Kaplan wrote. The Soviets lost between 12,000 and 50,000 men in Afghanistan, significantly fewer than the 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. Yet the number of Afghan civilians who were killed during the war, estimated at more than a million, is more than the number of civilians killed in Vietnam, a country that had two and a half times as many people as Afghanistan. The Soviets achieved the effect of a nuclear strike without actually having to deliver one. Let's talk to Amy about what that meant. Hi, Amy. Hi there. So my first reaction when reading this old story by Robert Kaplan was kind of a shock at the scale of destruction that the Soviets called. Mm. He calls it the best example of total war, and he says it killed a million civilians. And now you have the Russians coming in and saying they can act as an honest broker. How do you make sense of that? It's incredibly hard to make sense of what's going on um, because on the one hand, The Russians, or rather the Soviet Union, Moscow, the Kremlin, in a way uh, started what Afghans now call their 40-year war. Um, What's going on today in Afghanistan, the American war, wouldn't have happened without what had happened before, which was the reign of the Taliban, and before that, the civil war, and before that, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. So it's all connected. And Somewhat ironically, the fact that Russia is now involved in trying to bring together a peace settlement plan for Afghanistan, for the country it plundered and um, basically, well, ravaged its agriculture, uh, killed a million of its people and created the biggest refugee conflict uh, problem at the time before Syria. The fact that Russia's involved again feels, uh, it feels both appropriate and strange at the same time. Um, the talks that were held in Moscow, there were two sets of talks. One involved Russian officials and the other ones were intra-Afghan talks. And those were more interesting. Those involved Hamid Karzai, the, the, the sort of father of the Afghans, the former president, American-backed leader of Afghanistan. And it was extremely strange for me to stand in a room in central Moscow, in a hotel room, which is owned by the Kremlin, where the amount of men, Afghan men who were standing in there, had so much Soviet blood on their hands. And there they were, all in Moscow, smiling and laughing and trying to bring an end to this war with Moscow's guidance. So, yes, that's, I mean, it's kind of, you know, history um, in the making, and it's remarkable to witness. So, you mentioned the Afghans who had fought the Russians. And I know that, you know, a lot of the Afghans from that era are still around and still important in Afghan politics. Do you know if that's true on the Russian side too? Is it literally the same set of people? Do you mean the people who would have been there during the Soviet war? Yeah. 
A few of them are there. I mean, that so. Um, so yes. So if we look at the Russian actors um, who are now involved in trying to bring, uh, trying to bring pe- all sides to the table and create a, a form of a peace settlement, we do see some new faces to the conflict. Sergei Lavrov, who is heavily involved in Russian efforts to create peace in Afghanistan. He was not involved in any way in the Soviet war in Afghanistan. However, we have Zamir Kabulov, who's an extremely senior official within the Russian foreign ministry who served in the Soviet embassy in Afghanistan during the 80s. He speaks um, he speaks Dari and Pashto, two of Afghanistan's main languages. And he knows all the players um, and he pretty much knows everything there is to know about the last 45 years of Afghan history. Um, and I think he is, um, he's their golden ticket um, by, by using him, by having him involved. The Russians have some serious clout because Kabulov is quite respected by Afghan power brokers. Um, he, they may have been on opposing sides, but... Um, but they all speak the same language, literally and, and, and figuratively. And I think that's that's worked in Russia's favor enormously. So how is the war remembered in Russia? It's interesting you ask that because I've been coming to Russia for 18 years and this war was almost never referred to on the government level um, it was widely seen as a failure. It was called a, a political mistake by Gorbachev himself in 1989 when the troops, when the Red Army had withdrawn in a humiliating defeat. Films, plenty of films and books have been made about the war and they've been overwhelmingly negative. Um, and what is interesting to have witnessed now is in the last few years, as Russia regains its presence on the global stage um, as, a, as an important power broker, as an important country to settle disputes, what we're seeing is a rewriting of the history of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And on February 15th, um, 2019, so just last month, uh, Russian parliament actually passed a resolution overturning Gorbachev's previous statement saying that it was a political mistake. Um, and they've essentially justified their invasion of the country, their occupation of it, and what happened afterwards. And um, there was, yeah, it was, um, we went from seeing defeat to um, it being recast and repackaged as victory. I attended um, an enormous well, it wasn't really a celebration, more of a commemoration, but it it did have a lot of a lot of pomp uh, and a lot of important figures there, and it was a very jovial mood. And this was this took place at the Kremlin on February fifteenth in honor of forty years since, um, uh, oh, sorry, thirty years since the withdrawal of that war, forty years since it began. Do you know how how Russian veterans of the war are taking that rewriting of history? I mean, I can sort of see why the Kremlin would want to do it, but I would imagine there are a lot of Russian soldiers out there who fought in this conflict who may not like this idea of of having their past rewritten. Yes, so the I mean, so the the Russian vets um and they go by the name Afghansi um in in Russian. They're a very interesting group of people 
mostly because they did fight this humiliating, awful war for which they then received very little um, honor and attention afterwards. And so the Afghansi community, um, the ones I've been speaking to, and I've tried to speak to a broad range of them, they are split down the middle, I would say, on the rewriting, the repackaging of this war. Some of them are absolutely delighted that the government has decided to honor them 30 years later. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but some of them are equally not delighted and, um, they feel, they feel betrayed again. They, you know, it was already a betrayal that they had to fight this war, which ended up being an absolute disaster and, and a war which they believe they were told lies in order to enter the war. Um, and now some of them feel that they're being betrayed a second time, that there's salt being thrown into the wound, um, that not only, did they have to fight this completely awful and um, quite useless war that now they're they're being propped up uh, as part of a Russian modern day propaganda game uh, to to justify the the Kremlin's greatness um, and its past? Yeah, you you mentioned how awful the war was. That was one of the things that really comes across in this in this Kaplan story. I think he says it's. Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion was the perfect example of total war. And I, I, I was thinking about that in relation to, you know, the United States involvement there where, you know, for all its faults, the U.S. military like really does grapple with the ethical limits of the use of force. It fails a lot of the time. But, you know, the American war wasn't the Soviet war. Um, do you do you think that that distinction between the sort of terribleness of these wars, do you have a sense of what that means to Afghans? I think Afghans on a whole um, think and feel a lot through rose-tinted glasses, um, as indeed we probably all do, especially those who've lived through war. I was regularly surprised when I lived in Afghanistan by how many Afghans would tell me how wonderful the Soviets were um, and how they compared to the Americans. And they would point to landmarks in Kabul and say, see that hospital, see that block of apartment apartments, who built that? The Soviets. What did you people do? What did the Americans build? Nothing. And that really is um, a kind of a common mantra, which Afghans say, and of course, Russians say this as well. I must say, there is some truth to that. Um, America was, the American war was very much into boosting the local forces, uh, bringing democracy, uh, championing human rights. Um, uh, the Soviet war was as brutal as it was. It was also part of a typical extension of how the Soviet Union dealt with spreading communism in those days. Uh, you know, schools were set up across the country. Ch girls were taught to read. Uh, women's education uh, pretty much changed overnight. All the, all the meanwhile, while bombs are raining down. Um, so I'm not trying to justify it. But I do think it's important that Afghans... Um, uh, that, yeah, I mean, maybe time heals or time makes you forget, but they certainly see the Russians in a very favorable light these days, which is um, quite mind-boggling um, when you do think about the history. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's worth bearing in mind compared to the million people and people's, and I think a million is a conservative estimate. Um, uh, it, it, there seems to be more Afghans who were killed by the Soviets in, in those nine plus years compared to the number of killed um, civilians 
it's been significantly fewer. I mean, it's it's um, somewhere in the area of 40,000 civilians uh, during the American-led war, um, another 40,000 or so fighters, Taliban fighters, um, and roughly 80,000 or so um, troops, Afghan troops. So in terms of absolute numbers, the American war was um, was not as damaging. Of course, the American war has gone on considerably longer than the Soviet war. The Americans are also seen, compared to the Russians, as being, well, America is the the, the richer uh, country. Um, and so I think a lot of Afghans are genuinely confused as to why the Americans couldn't, quote unquote, fix their country, which... Um, which we all know um, they have not been able to, whatever fix means. But the the situation there does rem- remain extremely, extremely volatile. Can you tell me how the experiences of these two wars has been different for women in Afghanistan? So the issue of women was extremely important in both wars. Interestingly enough, the Soviets, just like their American counterparts years later, recognize that Afghanistan is a deeply traditional and conservative society where women um, have very few rights compared to how they do in the West. And so the Soviets, um, even though there was large-scale massive bombing, they were interested in educating women. They they set up female-only schools across the country. They made women bus drivers, which is in, in true Soviet fashion, copying what they did all over the Soviet Union. They made them tram drivers and all of that. The Americans had um, a similar approach in terms of education, they wanted to, quote unquote, free the Afghan women to liberate them, which is to use Hillary Clinton's wording um, from the late 90s um, when she was talking about the Taliban then. And um, and also Laura Bush described it as liberating them. Obviously, Afghan feminists find this quite insulting as a term. However, it is worth bearing in mind that in the urban centers, what the Americans managed to achieve is to create civil society and to give education to women um, and girls. And what the Americans successfully achieved um, is this entire strata of society of Afghans, of women who are incredibly strong, who are educated, and who have had a taste for what they can have in a more equal society. And now that the US is negotiating with the Taliban, and that the Taliban have made their view on women quite clear. Um, They've come out and said, yes, uh, women will have all the rights that they will have in Islam, but I'm yet to meet an Afghan woman, either in government or as an activist or as a feminist or just as a simple student who says, yes, I trust them, let them come. Um, So I think women's voices are being completely ignored from the peace process. um, And the Americans owe it to the Afghan women who they said they would protect from day one to uh, follow through on their plans and make sure women are represented at peace talks and in any future government that that country is going to have. Right. Um, one of the one of the lessons that I took from that Kaplan piece was about sort of engagement with politics because the Soviets you know, basically, you know, they rolled into the country, they knocked off the president uh, uh, and thought they were just going to be able to, you know, reset the government the way they wanted. And and it didn't work. 
you know, they, they stuck around for 10 years, bombed the hell out of the place, but, but never seems like seriously to never, seems like they never took seriously what was going on politically in the country. And I'm curious, you know, you know, now we have an American government that it seems like they may also be sort of ignoring the politics on their way out. Um, because you have the president of the United States seeming like he wants a quick exit from the country, regardless of what the negotiated settlement is. Are we making the same mistakes that the Soviets did? I think, I think the United States is copying a lot of the mistakes the Soviets made. And it's, um, it's heartbreaking to see because we saw what happened after the Soviet war. We saw, the um, Soviet-backed government hold on for just a uh, couple more years. Um, and then as the Soviet Union crumbled, so did the Soviet-backed government of Afghanistan, and then the country erupted into full-blown civil war. It does feel eerily and uncannily familiar, what we're seeing right now, um, uh, ignoring the Russian peace talks, the American peace talks with the Taliban have excluded the Kabul government. Uh, this is totally shocking to all Afghan observers. Um, uh, I mean, people who are observing Afghanistan, not Afghans, but, um, well, it's also quite shocking to a lot of Afghans. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable how similar the situation is to 1989 and, and to what the Soviets um we're doing. And um, I, I do find it a very, um, I, there's just so much kind of um, irony, uh, the kind of going on so many re repeated situations, you know, so basically the Taliban, it looks like the Taliban will come back in some form. I think the government um, knows that's going to happen, expects that's going to happen. I think Afghans know that's going to happen. Um, in, they're going to return in some kind of power sharing agreement. But of course, where did the Taliban come from? Um, and then, of course, we go right back to the Soviet war. We go back to the Mujahideen, who were funded by the United States. I did think that something very interesting that stuck out in Kaplan's story was how um, how little and how, how much of a passing attention the U.S. role in this war was actually given. Um, if, if it wasn't for the United States, I think the Soviets would have walked over Afghanistan quite easily. Um, I mean, this was a major Cold War um, battle. The, this was a key Cold War battlefield, and the United States won it. Um, and this was not really discussed in his article in, in a way, which I think is quite interesting, because now that's exactly how Russians see it. And, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why Russia wants to reassert itself there, is to to get one up on the US for, for what happened in their war there. Yeah, you, you mentioned earlier that Hamid Karzai was part of these talks in Moscow, you know, he's the former president. He is sort of an alternative power center in the country, right? He still, he still has meetings every day in his, in his not presidential palace, what, you know, whatever it is that I'm curious if you think that the Russians, as cynical as they are, have a better grasp on actually where power lies in the country. I mean, he's not the president of the country, Hamid Karzai anymore, but he's powerful, right? 
He's super powerful. And um, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, he lives <laughs> he lives right next to the palace in the in the center of Kabul. I mean, he vacated it when he stepped down and basically moved next door um, and has been building and building and building into the road ever since. So um, it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. I would say that the Russians have a better grasp of what's going on. Absolutely. Um, they've been courting Karzai ever since Karzai turned against the Americans which he did when I was um when I was living there kind of 2013 you know that's all uh, ahead of the uh, the major withdrawal in 2014 he'd already uh, started um bad mouthing the Americans um at every possible point that he could um I also think it's I mean yes yeah, so the Russians have been inviting Karzai to Moscow they've been courting him for a very long time what was so particularly interesting was this meeting held um, in February, in, sorry, in late January in Moscow, which brought together not just Karzai, but serious influential figures, um, people from the Northern Alliance, 10 Taliban members, uh, a former president, a former vice president, sorry, um, a former governor in an influential place in the north in Balkh, who himself is now running against uh, Ghani in the upcoming elections. I mean, we've never seen any country manage to get so many power brokers and high, um, you know, senior Afghans in one room in that way. And it's an amazing feat. Um, and I don't think this is achieved by luck or simply by inviting them. This is serious Russian strategizing. And um, it's worth saying that of all the embassies in Kabul, the United States embassy is, of course, the largest in terms of personnel. But the second largest is not Britain. It's not Germany, who are the second and third biggest contributors to NATO troops. It's the Russians. And the Russians had no role uh, at all in the NATO-led war, except for occasionally um, letting some non-lethal equipment out. But, you know, they, they were not involved in that war, yet they have this enormous presence there. And I think that's very telling. And I met a, I met quite a few of the people who worked there, and I was impressed by their knowledge. They had been sent to Tehran to learn Farsi over several years before being sent to Afghanistan. They knew the history in and out. Um, and I thought, wow, damn, the, the, the Russians are, they're with it. Um, they make us look very, us, you know, the Americans, the Brits, they made us look pretty naive uh, when it came to Afghanistan, I must say. How do you think you get to that point? I mean, do you think that the United States, let's say we pulled out this year, we withdrew, like in 10 years, would like critical distance enable us to, to take this more seriously? Or is this just <laughs> like, you know, inherent in Russian Machiavellian statecraft? I think Russian, uh, I don't know how Machiavellian it is, um, or as opposed to just, I think what we underestimate about Russia is how brilliant they actually are at foreign policy. Um, and this is something that the, so the Soviet Union was brilliant at foreign policy. And by brilliant, I mean, having a wealth of expertise and being able to be friends or have good relations with all sorts of conflicting characters in a way that we don't in the West. Uh, for example, Russia um, is able to have relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran and Israel and Turkey. You know, I mean, they, they keep it up with everyone. Uh, and it's it's quite impressive. I, I, I really do think it's um, they've got a very well oiled machine in the foreign ministry here. Um, obviously, quite a um, 
a scary machine from um, other points of view. And we're talking about accusations of US election meddling, about poisoning of former spies in Britain. But um, in terms of how they view the world, um, I think um, they're very shrewd. And I suppose we should mention too that you've you've reported on apparent – Russian military involvement in with the Taliban. Can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit what they are doing or what we know of what they're doing? So the Russians deny that they are helping the Taliban um, militarily. They've denied it many times. Um, there, I must say, we've tried and tried to look into. American and Afghan claims that they are supplying the Taliban with arms and we were not able to to get very far. We weren't able to, I mean, we really tried, my colleagues and I at the Post, to get to the bottom of it. And it seems there's a lot of talk um, and there's not much to show for it. I, I mean, we were able to ascertain that some, you know, some Kalashnikovs, some small arms, of course, are being sold to the Taliban by the Russians, whether this is, um, we have a US general on record saying, you know, whether whether this is 10 or 10,000, we just don't know. Because pretty much all the cheap Kalashnikovs that you'll find, well, all Kalashnikovs are made in Russia. So, um, and also Tajikistan, which it has um, a Russian military, Russia's largest military base outside of Russia is in Tajikistan. Tajikistan is bordering Afghanistan and the border is extremely porous. So, of course, weapons and all sorts of artillery are passing through that point, And we all know that. Um, how much of it is intentionally coming from Moscow? I, I don't really feel we can say that um, with 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 certainty. Um, Russia definitely is genuinely worried about ISIS in Afghanistan. Um, there have been some ISIS flare-ups in the north near the Uzbek border, and um, Russia has set up um, a small base there. Um, although they say it's not really a base, but but I mean yes, it, it is a base. So in that sense. Um, there has been some aid and some help to uh, to Taliban fighters there. But in what capacity or how large, we really don't know. Right. If you were going to write a version of this Kaplan story today, a post-conflict analysis of where we sit, do you think it would be as bleak as what Kaplan wrote? His story was a post-mortem is that the kind of approach you would take or would it be more optimistic? Hmm, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, it would be difficult to write something that is as bleak as Kaplan has written and has <laughs> described, accurately described as well. I mean, Afghanistan was totally and utterly ravaged by the Soviets. Um, it was further ravaged, uh, which is hard to believe, but it's true, by the civil war that ensued, but um, which was an intra-Afghan conflict, which is worth bearing in mind. Um, so I would say that the most heartbreaking thing for Afghans to stomach and also for us in the West to stomach when describing or writing about the American war is the fact of a lost or broken promise, a promise that went unfulfilled. 
uh, a missed opportunity as well. Afghanistan will never in its life, and I, I mean, I can say this with, I mean, maybe, okay, I won't say never, but 99% sure that Afghanistan will never see the amount of money uh, that it saw flooding in in the way it did during the height of the American-led war. And um, that money was misspent. We all know it was misspent. The generals say it, even people in government. Um, and it's, it's, it's a deep and utter shame. And it's, um, it's shameful. But more than that, it's just, it's just so deeply heartbreaking um, in terms of what could have been achieved there and was not achieved there. The gulf is massive. Um, and I really don't think Afghanistan will ever be given this opportunity ever again. And that's what's particularly sad about this and, and makes it in a way even sadder and even worse than perhaps um, an old fashioned style Soviet assault on the country. Because um, the Soviets were, they also arrived with the promise, but, uh, you know, to build socialism. But uh, that promise was so um, uh, tepidly delivered compared to what the United States was doing there. Amy Ferris-Rotman is Moscow correspondent for The Washington Post. She's also the founder of Sahar Speaks, an organization that trains female Afghan journalists. The old story we were talking about is Afghanistan Postmortem by Robert Kaplan from 1989. You can read that on theatlantic.com. Amy, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This was super interesting. Interesting. 